Welcome, this is On Mike with Jordan Rich, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Joining me today is an Emmy Award-winning TV talk show host, producer, author, and speaker. His name is Bill Boggs, and he's a true industry insider. He's interviewed hundreds and hundreds of celebrities, talking actors, musicians, authors, athletes, even presidents. His TV credits include work with PBS, NBC, ABC, CBS, ESPN, and The Travel Channel. He was also the executive producer for the groundbreaking Morton Downey Jr. show. So we're here to talk with Bill about his career and his new hysterical book, The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, as told to Bill Boggs. So my first question is to tell us about your new book, Bill Boggs, and thank you for joining me on Mike. The reason I wrote the book was I had an idea. And I think in life, it's really important if you have what you think is a good idea, to follow through on it and to not be a person who said, you know, I had a good idea once. Um, I had uh, several years ago an idea for a novel, and I found a publisher and got it published, and it actually was optioned for a film that never got made. But I followed through on it. I had resolved. And the second, my second book was not a novel. Same thing. So with this one, I had what I thought was a good idea. And when I started the writing process, it was evident to me that the voice of my character, who is a, uh, a dog, the, the book is narrated by a dog. So it's a dog's view of life, human's life, a dog's view of media, uh, a dog's view of our, our foibles, our hypocrisies. And it's about a dog who becomes a big TV star and his master is a talk show host like me. So this is essentially a satirical novel designed, it's, it's, uh, I get ready for name dropping, boom, now, uh, Tim Allen asked me about it, and I said, it's like 270 pages of uh, long-form sitcom writing. <laughs> so as soon as I started writing it, the voice of Spike the Wonder Dog came through, and um, it took about a year and a half, and then I tested it with 10 people, just like a comedian would test his act before shooting a video. And all 10, over the course of three months, reported back to me over dinner. I don't want any favor. Tell me exactly what you think. That it was really funny. That it was that they laughed out loud many, many times. So this is Spike. The adventure of Spike the Wonder Dog is uh, enjoyed to get you thinking about human foibles and laughing at the same time. George, it's called the Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, as told to Bill Boggs, right? And basically, I had a dog on my first television show who was a huge star in North Carolina. He got five times more fan mail than I did, and he was Spike the Wonder Dog. Before going to New York for my big break, back in the mid-'70s, he was killed by a drunk driver right in front of me. It was horrible. Anyway, when to get back to your first question, when I had the idea to write this book, the thought was, what if Spike hadn't gotten killed, and it comes in today's world, not back then, to New York and become a big TV star with his talk show host master. So I patterned the whole book. The first half of the book is patterned after the arc of my career. Everything that happens on the air is a satire of things that actually have happened on television, right? So I did have a spike, and when I started, and he was a natural comic, and when I started to write the book, Somehow this crazy, funny, comical dog voice got transmuted onto the page. And that's why, I, from the very beginning, when I started to write it, I thought, it's not going to be by Bill Boggs. 
it's going to be as told to Bill Boggs. But you have to read the prelude to the book to understand how the dog got to tell, got to tell Bill Boggs the story. And then Bill Boggs wrote it down for the dog. So you got to get the book to do that. Well, you certainly have had your share of interaction with the famous. And uh, as a talk show host and a newsman, an amazing array. I was going through your YouTube channel, and it's just one big name after another. Can you remember the early days? Uh, who were some of your first celebrity interviews, if you can recall? Well, the early days, the early days of my career, I was on, uh, I'm from Philadelphia. The very first uh, six months of my career, I was a... Um, a crew member, a union crew member, setting up uh, setting up all manner of sets, running teleprompter. That that turned out to be very helpful. Then I then I got myself a job as a talent coordinator on the, on the local show on the same station. Learned how, you know learned how to book guests a lot. Honestly, Jordan, a lot in life is selling. You're selling yourself frequently all the time. And then my early uh, interviews uh, were replacing the host of the show in Philadelphia when he couldn't go somewhere. So I think the first interview I ever did was Colonel Sanders. <laughs> and it was interesting to hear his story of how he created. Uh, it's a long forgotten story at this point. He's like a cartoon character, but he had this wonderful recipe and he went around with the recipe and chicken, you know, in the trunk of his car or in the back seat and was able to slowly but surely build a fried chicken business. And then the next person I interviewed was Jimmy Stewart, mm. um, the actor at um, the world premiere of a movie called Fool's Parade in Wheeling, West Virginia. The host couldn't go. So I I started my interviewing career with a, uh, an actor and a chicken man. <laughs> what a start to your career to have sort of the American icon of actors, Jimmy Stewart. What was he like in that uh, first interview you had with him? I think that uh, a word that a word that doesn't describe very much that you see on television anymore would describe Jimmy Stewart, and that word is laconic. He had very measured, uh, there was a sweetness about him. Uh, like many movie stars, he had wonderful posture, he carried himself beautifully. But I think uh, laconic would be the word I would mm. use to describe Jimmy Stewart. But I, can you can you think of one person now uh, <laughs> On television, you would use that word to describe. <laughs> I'd be hard-pressed. I think Tom Hanks is the one who comes closest yeah. to, to Jimmy Stewart. We're talking with Bill Boggs, whose latest book is called The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, as told to Bill Boggs. And people have told you a lot. What What is the what is your secret sauce for getting people to relax or to getting people to open up, Bill? I think that uh, in an on-air interview on television, how I get how I get one person to relax would be completely different than how somebody else might do it. I think that uh, a couple of things. I think just being warm and friendly when you meet when you meet the guests before the interview, and uh, sometimes maybe telling them a little bit about your personal life that um, would be an example of getting them to empathize with you when you you essentially. Uh, Yes, getting them to empathize with you, getting them to trust you, uh, just developing a trust. A lot of it is nonverbal. You know, it's just a way, the sense that people have about each other. 
I've interviewed hundreds of celebrities uh, in my area in radio, and uh, I've found the same thing, that if you can connect on a personal level, not about the project they're working on, but about something personal, it sort of loosens the scene and, and takes the ice out of the room. But what do you do when you're dealing with someone like Miles Davis, who was notoriously cold and aloof, at least in public? How did you get Miles Davis to warm up to you? That, that question leads to a story. I have um, I have five, or actually six. I have six stage shows that I do. I've done. I started doing them as a so-called celebrity guest on Crystal Cruises in 2001. And over the course of many years, I've done 20 uh, cruises, like one a year, as a guest. And I kept creating these stage shows, which I now have done in East Hampton, in New York City, in, in the Palm Beach area, in Boca. And one of them is called Voices of Our Time. And it's about notable singers and musicians. And Miles Davis is in there. And the story, uh, by the way, someone listening now should be aware that I, this is not going away from Miles Davis. I have a YouTube channel called Bill Boggs TV on YouTube. It's free. It's free. And I urge people to go there and subscribe because the very thing we're talking about now can be seen mm. on Bill Boggs TV on YouTube. So I was in a restaurant in Los Angeles, and I felt a tap on my shoulder, and I turned around, and here's this beautific face, Miles Davis. I couldn't believe it. You know, a, a god, a, a, music, a music god. And he said, Bill Boggs. And he starts this conversation, man. I've been watching you for years. You're like the Today Show for me. My show came on like at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So we have a conversation, and he says, uh, I want you to come and see me. I'm going to be at uh, Abe Fisher Hall in a month. So he gives me the name of his, uh, gives me the card of his manager, and says, come backstage. We'll talk afterwards. So I went to Abe Fisher Hall, went backstage, just me, didn't have any guests. And in the conversation after the show, Miles Davis says, you know, I always watch that show, and I always wanted you to interview me. Now, at this point, I'm flabbergasted, right? I'm not acting flabbergasted. I think, holy Jesus, that's nice. So one thing led to another. At the time I was doing, I had left New York television, and this is before... I left the talk show world for a while to be executive producer of the Morton Danny Jr. show. So Miles Davis, at his own expense, I might point out, took a limo from um, New York down to Philadelphia for, for the interview. And uh, so the answer to your question is I felt supremely relaxed with Miles Davis because he wanted me to interview him. Now, all is illusion. If you look at the comments on the Bill Boggs TV, like people saying, I don't understand. How did this happen? Why would Miles Davis let this man interview him? Or this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Right? Miles hates this guy. But and that is pure, all his illusion. It's not true. Miles Davis gave me a big mm. hug afterwards. I saw him two more times, and he was delighted that he had done the interview. So yeah. 
That's the story of Miles Davis on Bill Boggs TV. I've been a fan of Bill Boggs TV since I knew I was getting a chance to interview you, and they're just an amazing array of people. I was watching Natalie Wood, Yul Brenner, but there's one I have to ask you about, and that's Jerry Lewis. Uh, Jerry Lewis, who was, uh, you know, on when he was on, hysterical, but was it easy to corral Jerry Lewis into talking with you, and how did you find him in, in terms of an interview subject? Well, the, the interview the interview with Jerry, actually I did two interviews with Jerry Lewis, and my agent lost the, the tape of the one, and each one was an hour long. I sure wish I had that second one. He lost the tape of the Jerry Lewis interview. How about that? Yeah. That's not good agent work. <laughs> anyway, and that was years and years ago. And actually, it was his assistant who lost it. Um, I first met Jerry Lewis in 1980 in Las Vegas when I was promoting my novel at first sight, just like I'm promoting the events of the Spike, the one dog now. And we hit it off. And he was in New York promoting uh, a movie. And um, I think the movie was hardly working. And we booked him for the show, and he came on. And, you know, he the fact that I had interviewed Frank Sinatra for an hour, uh, I think it's like I, anybody who came on the show, like Jerry Lewis, uh, knew that that I had to have something going for me. I've interviewed Frank for an hour, so uh, although Jerry could be famously prickly, and people look at that once again, and they they project onto it. Jerry was being mean to you. Jerry was this, that, and the other thing. Not really the case. Uh, two days later, Jerry Lewis called me at home and said, "I really enjoyed being with you on television." So um, th- those were the days when on a local show, or uh, like the show I had, Midday Live, in New York City, major stars like Jerry Lewis, uh, Natalie Wood, Sean Connery, Ewell Brenner, major stars would come and do local television to promote Michael Caine, uh, Diane Cannon, Christopher Reeve, to promote their movies. Bill, I've got to ask you about Morton Downey Jr., and you were the producer of that show. What was he like, and how was your experience? The Morton Downey Jr. show, I was executive producer, helped to take the show from local to syndication. The term I use was like take a roller coaster ride blindfolded. You just never knew, you never knew what twists or turns were going to happen. And it was a huge amount of fun. The, the, the staff that I put, that I had, Ed Glavin is now the executive producer of the Ellen DeGeneres show. Andy Regal uh, has, was the head of digital content for the Wall Street Journal. Um, let's see, one of the women writers, uh, Rebecca, is a major contributor to Vanity Fair. Uh, what else? It was one. Oh, yeah. The associate producer is the, is the second in command at the Ellen DeGeneres show. I mean, the staff of that, the staff of the Morton Downey Jr. And let's not forget that the boss, our boss, was Bob Pittman, who's now the president of iHeartRadio. So uh, my company, excluding me, you had a lot of real brain power uh, behind the Morton Downey Jr. show. And it was a lot of fun. As Regis Philbin, dropped another name, said uh, the fastest rise and fall in the history of television, Morton Downey Jr. Were you part of the scene there when the swastika incident oh, occurred? No, no. The, 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 you have to recount the story so people, anytime you say swastika, you got to let people know what. <laughs> right. So, uh, Mort, Mort uh, was in San Francisco at the airport. We, we, were, we did the show in New Jersey. And what happened, what happened, Jordan, was 
bathroom in the airport in San Francisco, Morton Danny claimed to be attacked by skinheads who shaved part of his head and put a swastika on it. Uh, this was a cause for them because at the time that Mort did it, was near the end of his run, when his credibility was really low. I mean, he was calling the National Enquirer, telling them he had seen UFOs. He was doing a lot of things to get publicity. So we were suspicious, although Phil Donahue did a whole 90-minute show that began with, I believe him, I believe him. But uh, I really never believed that it happened. We had to sympathize with him, and several years later, uh, I was able to investigate. And this is all in the film about Morton Downey Jr. Uh, that was a documentary film that was made a couple of years ago. Uh, there's a film made about Morton Downey Jr. Uh, he did it because he wanted his girlfriend to have sympathy for him and to get and to get closer to him. The film is titled Provocateur, and it tells the whole. I tell the story in, in the film, so that's that's a long one. It took it took me years to find out exactly what happened and why he did it, but I did. Bill, I've got one of these. You probably do too. A dream list. Someone who got away. You never got a chance to interview, and you and you may be kicking yourself because you missed the opportunity. Who'd be on that list? Bob Hope canceled three times. Uh, once in Philadelphia and twice in New York. I would have enjoyed interviewing Bob Hope. Uh, the actor Lee Marvin. I wanted to interview him. He came on the show, but he was so drunk he couldn't talk and had to be helped <laughs> off of the set. Oh. It was a taping. Uh, and boy, do I wish I had that tape, but the director stupidly erased the tape. I mean, really, very dumb move. Who else? I, they're, they're the two that, the two that come to mind. I mean, there are other people. I've always wished I'd been able to interview Jacqueline Kennedy of Nassus. Uh, to this day, I would love to interview Bill Clinton about why, when he was in eighth grade, why were teachers saying, you're going to be president of the United States someday? What qualities was he exhibiting that early in life? You know what I mean? You know, the kind of long-form conversations that you've had throughout your career and the kind that I have the opportunity to have on this podcast – do you bemoan the fact, as I do, that these have ebbed away, that there's not as much of this out there, certainly on broadcast TV? What's your take on that? I think that the, as a result of the pandemic, excuse me just a second, I need a sip of water. As a result of the pandemic, Jordan, you have all manner of Zoom shows going on where conversation, long-form conversation, like I used to do in the early, in most during most of my major career on TV, I was doing long-form conversation. If somebody like Miles Davis would come, we'd talk to him for 40 minutes, or Jerry Lewis, or you know, long-form. And then things get shorter and shorter and shorter. I think that you're going to see a substantial change, uh, more toward authenticity, more toward real conversations. There's going to be a whole new form of entertainment that will survive as a result of the Zoom broadcast and things like that that are being done during the pandemic. What a lovely and hopeful answer that is. Thank you for that, Bill. Hey, beyond YouTube and, of course, the new book and speaking engagements, and that's a lot on one's plate, where else can people find you these days? Well, uh, I'm doing it. Yeah, well, I'm doing a show. We're not doing it this Friday. It's called, normally I do a show called Trap Live. Uh, and I've had some wonderful guests on the show, but we're not doing one this Friday 
because we concentrate on comedy. And with what's going on in the country, I don't think people are focusing on comedy. I think we're focusing on how, how are we going to get the riots, not the protests, but the riots to end. The pro peaceful protests are fine. But, you know, the looting is terrible. But it's called Trap Live, and it's on the YouTube channel. I do one every week. Uh, we did one with... Um, the, the comedian Tom Dreesen. We did a celebration of Sinatra. We did a, a terrific one with Lucy Arnaz. Uh, we did one with the comedian Lisa Lampanelli, another one with Judy Gold, and a couple other comedians. So each coming up, we've got Bob Costas, Phil Proctor from Firesign Theater, uh, Alan Zweibel, but we're not doing one this week. So what, if you want to, you know, Bill Boggs TV goes all the way back to 1970. And as most recent as last Friday, there's about 500 clips on Bill Boggs TV on YouTube. That and is... there's also me talking about the book. I, I taped a little thing there when I you know, explain what the book is and some of the reviews we've gotten. I've gotten the Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog has gotten endorsements from uh, Andrew Dice Clay, Bob Saget. Uh, comedian Richard Richard Lewis, those three guys immediately endorsed the book. Uh, Jeffrey Ross is going to give us a plug. So people are, the comedy world is uh, is embracing the, the Wonder Dog. They really like him, which made me, makes me happy. Well, it's been a delight interviewing you, Bill Boggs, and having you on this podcast to learn a bit about you and your style and some of the experiences. And of course, We'll be reading your book, but thank you very much for spending a little time with us and sharing some great stories. Thank you, George. My thanks once again to the Emmy-winning Bill Boggs, outstanding interviewer and a very fine author. His latest book, once again, is The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, as told to Bill Boggs, available at Amazon.com and anywhere fine books are sold. Great to have you aboard. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for subscribing and downloading the podcast. Also, my thanks to Ken Carberry of Chart Productions and Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media. This is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>